Tonight's scripture passage is Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. If you would like to turn to the passage, there are few Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, it's Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have not forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as though they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. This is the word of God. Well, this summer we've been in the book of Hebrews, and I've been telling you that the book of Hebrews... uh, is a book of the Bible, but it's also a sermon. It was a sermon that was preached to a congregation. And we're getting really close to the end. In fact, next week's going to be our last sermon here on Hebrews. And uh, application, the application of the sermon is starting to come on heavy. If you've noticed, there hasn't been a lot of that. Uh, the first nine chapters of Hebrews are this grand retelling of the story of God's people from creation, to the wilderness, to the law, and then the priesthood of Christ. And then chapter 10 gave us this quick look at how Christ, Christ's work applies to 
our lives now. And then last week in Hebrews 11, there was this litany of Old Testament characters reminding us of God's steadfast love and how he filled it, uh, ordinary people with faith. And these people, we said, they're not heroes themselves. Uh, they're, they're just regular people who've been filled up with faith. And then this week, we're getting to look at uh, how they are witnesses to, to God's awesomeness. Uh, or that, that was completing last week. And then this week, we're going to look at how God uh, takes those faithful people and through discipline keeps them on the trail. You know, we've been using this pilgrimage language uh, to talk about how Hebrews is always progressing towards. And next week, we're going to get to the, to the place where it goes, which is this figurative thought of Mount Zion. Uh, and this week, we're talking about how discipline is God's way of keeping us on the trail towards him. And, and discipline's a term that I bet all of you are like, man, this feels good. I'm really good. I'm excited about a discipline sermon. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a nice. This will build me up for my week. Um, I'm starting to think about work, and I'm just ready to hear about discipline. Uh, from the start, let me just acknowledge that uh, this is a room of people who have experienced wounds. We're all wounded from other people. And we're wounded even from our own choices. And I just want to mention uh, at the beginning that God loves you. And it's crucial to understand that if you're going to talk about discipline. He wants to see you whole. He wants to see you healed. So just know that tonight, uh, when we're talking about discipline, we're talking about God applying his love to your wounds and your malformations that are wounding other people, all for the sake of good outcomes, okay? You've, you've got to understand that before we talk about discipline. Some of you grew up in moralistic church cultures, and the idea of discipline sounds like vengeance or sanctioning from God or God's people. Others of you might have grown up in a more relativistic culture, so the idea of discipline sounds like intrusion, because you, you were taught that, you know, there are different ways of viewing morality and, and whatever is your way is okay. I kind of grew up in, in that, uh, though I did grow up going to Catholic school, so I think I've seen both. Uh, I can understand what sanctioning looks like, but I also have a, you know, I think my worldview was shaped by a more relativistic view of morality. Those are just cultural observations, Okay. And you may have grown up in a house with parents whose view of discipline was not biblical. And that's going to end up informing the way that you understand how God disciplines. So I hope today that we can get a healthy view, a healthy vision for discipline so that we can appreciate it from God. Perhaps apply it to our own lives and those we love, but also so that we can call out discipline that's not biblical. Let me begin with a, a simple story. When I was in high school, I had, uh, I had a sort of hero from a distance. I considered this person sort of a mentor. We didn't know each other, but I was familiar with his life. Uh, I loved mischief, not deviance or uh, malice. I just liked mischief. And this mentor named Ferris, you might know him, uh, 
was sort of the person who I wanted my high school life to look like. Not so much in grades or in sports, but I wanted to do mischief with excellence in the order of Ferris Bueller. Uh, and you might think I'm kidding, but I am very serious. Uh, I once broke into my high school with my friend Joe, and we moved an entire classroom's worth of desks onto the roof of the school. Um, our vice principal, Mr. Hoffman, had a flip phone, kept it on his belt loop. I don't know why, but he put a label on it with the phone number on the outside. So Joe and I, Saturday night, we would give him a call, see how he's doing, let him know what we'd been up to that weekend. Um, just check in. And uh, so, but my, my magnum opus, I, my senior year, I really escalated and I got to some Saturday detentions, which was, I was pretty proud about. Because you have to, that takes work. Um, you know, all through high school, I got a lot of detentions, but Saturday detentions through senior year, but really, you've reached, you've reached the apex when you get suspended. Uh, so the week before graduation, my friend Justin and I acquired uh, the master key to all the lockers in the entire school. Our school assigned free hanging locks to students and then had the serial numbers written down for every lock uh, in a binder. And we went in at night and we switched all the locks on every locker in the school so that when students arrived the next morning, everyone mysteriously was locked out of their lockers. I was caught. Uh, and we still, to this day, I, I don't know how we got caught, but we were. Uh, and we were suspended. This was like one of the last weeks of school. Justin and I were both suspended for the rest of high school. Uh, and I wasn't allowed to participate in graduation or the play that I had a part in. And to be clear, uh, I do want to say that I regret this, and I can't believe that I did it. Uh, it wasn't mischief. I thought it was mischief, but it was... It was chaos for other students and the entire staff of the school. And uh, so uh, I think it's, I do still think it's funny, but, um, <laughs> but it, was, it was cruel. Uh, interestingly, I became a Christian three or four weeks after this happened. And I think that this actually played a role in me becoming a Christian, uh, both positively and negatively. I was punished pretty unlovingly. Uh, if you talk to my mom about this experience, she gets pretty angry and not at me. Uh, because I was punished without instruction. And uh, the principal was very cold and uh, made the very poor choice to blame and really berate my mom for not raising me right. And I, I was a fool. I mean, I, I was a fool. And I needed someone to explain to me that I was a fool and why, uh, why you know, some of my choices might not be helpful in adult life. I loved pranks and I loved goofing off. I was a passionate kid. But I didn't have a lot of direction of how to channel that. And that principal didn't speak into that. She, uh, she basically just told me I was a bad person and then told my mom that she had raised a bad person. You contrast that with Donna Dermont. Donna Dermont was my senior English teacher. 
and she was wonderful. And when I was uh, when I was walking from the office to clear out my locker, I ran into her, and she grabbed me by the shoulders. She she played a huge part in my life. She uh, really helped me form a love of writing. She's the reason I became an English major in college. She stopped me, she gave me a hug, and she grabbed me by the shoulder, and, and she had a good laugh with me about my prank, uh, but then she didn't let me get off the hook either. You know, and she just said, you, you need to leave this place because uh, you're, not, you're not getting to use your creativity and, the, and your energy in ways that are helpful. And you need to go find space for that in college. But, but don't point it in the wrong places. And I, I never forgot that. You know, it stuck with me so much more than that berating that I got from the principal. And what was interesting, why I bring up that I became a Christian, was that I, when I heard the gospel for the first time, I realized that God is like Donna Dermond. God is not like that mean principal who chastises me. She doesn't just let me off the hook. You know, God, God doesn't just let me off the hook, just like Donna Dermond didn't. Uh, God explains things and lovingly points us towards health. Uh, discipline is instruction. That's what discipline means. Uh, disciple, probably know that word. It's another word for student. And discipline is a cognate of disciple, okay? So it means to instruct. Were it not for Mr. Mond, I probably would have left high school very bitter. And I might have never come to terms with the fact that I was the transgressor, even though I I really hated getting yelled at, and I really feel uh, sad that my mother was shamed. I caused that catastrophe at my school. Just because the administration was cold and austere does not mean that I was the source of all, uh, doesn't mean that I wasn't the source of all that turmoil. Th that's discipline, what Donna Dermond did with me. To take someone in brokenness, and, and instruct them how to put things back together. Whether you're talking about discipline by a parent, by a teacher, in a church, or by God, biblical, disciple, di biblical discipline is clear, it's lucid, it's instructive, and it's full of love. Hebrews shows us that biblical discipline is full of truth, and full of love, and it's also full of pain. So, biblical discipline is truthful. Verses 6 and 7 are quoting uh, from Proverbs about instructing a child. And the word translated discipline in that section is the same word for instructing or training a child. This is not saying that God castigates his children. It's saying that he teaches them. He instructs them. But that truth can be painful. I don't know if you've ever done physical therapy, but that's what discipline is like. And physical therapy is actually an analogy that comes in in verse 13. Having an injury obviously hurts. And it can be easy to nurse it and allow it to deform over time rather than going through the painful process of 
restoring it. Implied here is that there's a healthy form of instruction, and there are plenty of ways to deviate from that healthy physical therapy of the soul. The pain that's being referenced when we're disciplined, it's not from God in a cruel way. It's not punishment. Just like pain from a physical therapist is not punishment. It's the difficult process of working out on health. Discipline should be thought of as knowing what is healthy and struggling to work toward that. Discipline is not arbitrary suffering from God. Let me say that again. Discipline is not arbitrary suffering from God. For you tender souls suffering from the death of a loved one or a lost relationship, a toxic workplace, that's not what's in mind when Hebrews is talking about discipline. Discipline's not a puzzle of misfortunes that we try to discern, where things of unfortunate circumstance happen to us and we say, oh, is God, is God disciplining me? Is he, is he trying to teach me something through these weird, hard circumstances? Discipline is about the things that we can clearly know, like, like knowing something like overeating can cause obesity, or smoking can cause breathing issues, or walking on an injured foot can deform it. To reverse obesity, to quit smoking, to rehabilitate an injured foot are all challenging and painful, but they're, they're clear. So I, just, I, I want you to know uh, when, we're, when we're going through suffering, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is trying to discipline you. I'm going to come back to that. A few times in Hebrews, we've been reminded of the human capacity for self-delusion. We always tell ourselves stories that justify our choices, and we even try to adjust Scripture to justify our choices and nuance what we're doing. But discipline is about basic diagnostics of human unhealth that are apparent to us. Discipline's not about a life like Job's. It's the practical, painful rehabilitation that God does for us. Pain that is a struggle um, from inexplicable suffering is not something that we should quickly attribute to God's discipline, especially in other people's lives, lest we become like Job's friends. The pain of discipline is that aching of knowing it would be easier to not address some unhealth, but to still pursue therapy. And we diagnose our our unhealth when we let Scripture, not our intuition, diagnose our life. There's two theologians named Stephen Fowle and Gregory Jones, and they paraphrase this idea that comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer by saying this. Christian communities, let me just pause and say, if you're in a small group this year, this is a, this is a great way to think about small groups, okay? Christian communities must be aware of the possibilities of interpreting Scripture in such a way that it supports rather than subverts corrupt and sinful practices. This means that we Christians will need to learn to read scriptures over against ourselves rather than simply for ourselves. 
This is the sense in which our readings of the texts involve allowing the text to provide a reading of us. It hurts to give up our addictions and indulgences or to just let our out-of-whack habits be, uh, be conformed. But this pain is not cruel or moralistic. It's not uh, a view of discipline where we're chiding and uh, whipping people with our morals. We, we have to recall that biblical words for discipline are cognates for teaching, instruction, and learning. It's instruction that's gentle, like a loving parent. If you have an intuitive resistance to discipline because of a bad church experience or a bad parent or you've never been shown any discipline, know that God's discipline is the expert, loving process of rehabilitation toward health. We all need that discipline. What is the bad ankle that you want to keep walking on instead of allowing the Father to treat it? There are things in Scripture that we know and we just... We just want to justify our actions that contradict them. We rationalize our sexual unhealth, or we try to reinterpret what scriptures say about hoarding and overconsuming. American Christians love to use the phrase, I struggle with, and then name a thing that's eating our souls alive. Struggle is a word for difficulty, but Hebrews is saying, this is, not a, this is not a hindrance. This is a malformation, and it's destroying you. God doesn't ask us to pursue uh, peaceful relationships at the end of Hebrews just for the sake of making sure you do a good job. What he's saying is that we want to pursue peaceful relationships and sexual integrity, prudence in our consumption, generosity in our lifestyles, because, not because he enjoys depriving us of things that we like, but because he wants to protect us. He wants to see us not walk on that busted ankle. He's trying to keep us from choosing the soup like Esau did. Esau chose some immediate satisfaction at the expense of a better inheritance. God asks us to let go of bitterness to steward sexuality within his design, to moderate our consumerism, because our souls are truly healthier and more prosperous for it. Not because he likes to whip us and chastise us. Verse 1 could literally be translated, let's put off all that weight and shed that sin that clings to us. That's, that's, how you, that's how it literally translates in the Greek. Let's put off all that weight and shed that sin that clings to us. And this, again, is relying on some pilgrimage vocabulary, right? Like we're walking up a mountain, we're carrying this stuff with us. Imagine walking up a trail toward a peak. You've got this busted ankle that's not in a splint, and you're carrying this unnecessary baggage. It's like our bitterness is this extra pack that we can throw to the side. Like our sin is the oils of poison ivy sticking to our skin. And discipline is 
wiping off those oils and tossing the bitterness off the trail so that we can move faster and freer toward our destination. So what is our destination then? Where are we on this pilgrimage to that God is trying to keep us on the trail towards through discipline? Well, himself, God, the presence of God, that, the place where God dwells. And where does God dwell? Well, one answer is everywhere. <laughs> but in a more tangible sense, there's a few places that we know God's presence is imminent and potent. The first is any place where believers gather. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. His presence, when people gather in some mysterious way, is amongst us. Not in an overwhelmingly tangible way. We don't see him. But something happens when we, when we get together. I think of church as sort of like we're gathering at Gatsby's to see the dock light at Daisy Buchanan's. We gather to see that flashing green light. And we know that that represents someone who's there. But it's not the same as being on the dock. Nevertheless, we journey together towards that flashing light, drawing closer with hope. Arrival at the destination is what we're going to look at next week when we conclude uh, Hebrews. That place where we arrive is often called the city of God. The new Jerusalem, it says in in, uh, Revelation 21. The new heavens and the new earth, or Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the place where the holy city of God is. Flush with rivers and gardens and a vibrant metropolis of goodness and beauty. And that's why one of my favorite hymns is called, We're Marching to Zion. It's about the fact that we're moving We're moving toward God. It gives you agency. We're not a bunch of sinners with a cheap grace ticket in the earthly waiting room of heaven. We're pilgrims on a trail. We're moving. Some of us leave the trail at times. We start chasing foolish distractions along the path or we're injured and we won't give up our injury. But we're not stuck here in a holding pattern. So long as we don't trade our great future for a bowl of soup, we trek on toward the hill of Zion. That hymn says, uh, the hill of Zion, which yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields, before we reach the heavenly fields, or walk the golden streets, or walk the golden streets. We do only see the blinking light, so we don't fully enjoy his presence yet. We're not left without joy along the trail. And that joy is richer when we allow discipline to keep us healthy. We can march toward fruitfulness. Hebrews is, again, using wilderness and agricultural imagery for the Christian life. If you recall all the way back to Hebrews 2, we learn that Christ is the pioneer of our faith. A Greek word that also indicates a a trailblazer. Christ has bushwhacked through the thickets and the thorns of our sin and our bitterness to make a way in his suffering for us toward the light of Mount Zion so that we can enjoy his presence, his holiness. What is holiness? It's a term that gets thrown around in church a lot, but we don't define it. 
Hebrews is saying that we can be refined like precious metal. That's what holiness is. That God is so perfect and good, he melts away imperfections, leaving behind something that's bright like silver, something that's strong like tungsten, something that's valuable like gold. In our present state, we can't be close to God. We would be burned up. We'd be consumed not because God is cruel or punitive. It's that God is so bright and beautiful and powerful that he can slice miles of rocks into mountains and dig trenches deep enough to form oceans. And we can't handle that presence in our current state. So we walk behind Christ, the trailblazer. The good news is we don't have to sit in that woeful state forever. We can grow in spiritual healing along the trail. Nowhere are we promised that we will move to perfection or perpetual progress. But verse 11 says that allowing the discipline of God on our souls pays for peaceful fruit. That's what it's saying. It actually says pays. Like there's this seed whose investment brings this return. The payment is likened to something delightful, a peaceful fruit. If you invest in this, it will pay a peaceful fruit. There's this double metaphor happening in verse 11 where uh, the author is playing with the word trained. And then you see there's language of joints and hands and knees So in one sense, we see the training as rehabilitation that restores the right straightedness of our bodies. But there's also a sense of training like a vine is trained on a trellis so that it can yield more fruit. Rather than uh, if it were growing along the ground. The training, which is discipline, is both healing like training your body to be restored, but also training like a vine that produces more fruit because it has the space to grow in its health. Again, this is not promising an easy life or an earthly healing or an earthly prosperity or perpetual progress, but it is offering a spiritual healing that draws us closer to God if we allow it to happen to us. That we might come through some pain to a reward of spiritual fruit. So if you're feeling oppressed by suffering or defeated by discipline, Hebrews is saying, lift your drooping hands and straighten your knees, realizing the hope before you. Hebrews says that our unhealthy souls can be rehabilitated and even fruitful. And it says it doesn't come easy, unfortunately. We cannot regain healthy weight by sitting. We cannot quit smoking passively. In terms of a mountain trek, there are many easy ways down a mountain, but the peak is challenging and narrow as a destination. And Hebrews compares that to a joint, a dislocated joint that will not be healed by ignoring the injury, creating strange adaptations to to live your life with it. Your best application in this sermon is to remember earlier in Hebrews how we talked about our stories being biased and false. If you remember, we talked about how the people in Israel 
were out in the wilderness. They were about to go in the promised land. And they said to Moses, man, why don't you bring us to this land of milk and honey? We don't even know this place. We should go back to Egypt where we were slaves for 400 years. I think that would probably be better. I mean, that seems insane when you read that story. But we all tell ourselves stories about our wounds that are unhelpful. For some, we're overly victimized. For some, we take responsibility for things that others did to us in an unhealthy way. We're wounded people. We're in need of restorative therapy. And that therapy comes through the cross. Because Christ died, we face no condemnation. We don't need to hide our shame or our guilt because there's no punishment for it. You might be entitled, you might be immature, you might be self-indulgent, you might be controlling, you might be withholding. We have lots of ways that we wound others with our personalities, but you don't need to be afraid of confronting those things in yourself. You don't need to be afraid of bringing them out before God because Christ died on the cross. He's been shamed in our place. He's been punished for any guilt you might feel. So you're free to approach God, not as a judge, but as a physician. And so you can allow him to diagnose where you've been lying to him, where you've been lying to yourself, to let scripture read against you and show you those places. And as a result, be healed, that you might not fall behind, Hebrews says, but instead that you would trek on toward his presence in the heavenly city. Amen.